Uh, can I just say this, random man? If like you know, every time I come back home, it feels like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Like you know, it feels good to be home. There's just something different when you're amongst uh, family. But no, like uh, recently, this whole week, there was a lot going on. One thing in particular, there was Give Miami Day. Um, yeah, and uh, and we had a goal uh, during that day to raise about seventy thousand dollars in one day, uh, which was a very audacious goal. <laughs> Let me just say that that was very audacious, and the, the part of the reason was well, we, we have a very audacious God, so we're not going to have small ass just because uh, you know we want to make sure that the things that we receive from the Lord aren't necessarily things that we always feel like we can do in our own strength. Nevertheless, um, we didn't reach that goal, which is okay. It, it, it wasn't just about reaching a goal. It was about seeing what God would do in our hearts. And, and what was cool is what God did do in our hearts, where, where though we didn't reach uh, 70, we, we got about over $11,000 in one day, which is pretty, pretty significant. Uh, yeah. Um, when, when, you think, when you think of just kind of even where we are seasonally, and one of the things, to, to honestly, to our shame, and I say our, but really it's mine. So let, let me let me just let me free the pastors of this uh, and say to my shame is we actually don't talk enough about finances here at the church. Now part of that is because there's this weird tension in my heart where it's like I just know as a pastor it's like oh that's what you talk about like my finances and sex that's all that's the only thing that you Christians talk about like you know and so there's always this weird tension in me personally where it's like i you know i don't i don't necessarily talk about that often and unfortunately that's actually bad leadership on my part um, and so um, it was just a reminder of just, man, the grace of god even in the midst of bad leadership on my part now i'm going to say after this series, we are actually going to talk about finances. Um, <laughs> but it's not from necessarily um, the standpoint that we may traditionally hear. It's actually so that we could see a greater sense of joy and generosity and how those two things are tied. And honestly, it's also so that God could force me to be who he's called me to be, which is to lead from every aspect of the truth. And so um, just want to say that thank you guys for those who participated both in giving and in sharing. Um, without you, it doesn't happen in the season that we're going into where we're looking to God for some pretty audacious things for you to model that in a day been. Thank you. I, I just started the timer. 14 seconds in. Let's go. Now, um, we have been in this series, Hi, I'm Your Inner World, where we have been walking through Psalms and we have been looking at the various degrees of our hearts, what's happening beneath the surface. We, we took a little break where we started to talk about like just really the degree of suffering that exists all around us and how it affects our inner world. Um, and, and Brian closed that series well, man. Like, man, we just, I mean, from Carlos to Brian, I, I just thought it was Really, really rich what God was speaking through them, through the text. And so I actually feel, I feel no um, a desire necessarily to even rehash any of that. In fact, we're actually not going to be in Psalms today. Um, we do this thing, we haze our members and we haze our leaders. And so we were hazing Paulson, making him read all of these genealogies, all right? You know what I mean? But, uh, but we are actually going to be in Luke 3. And the reason we're going to be in Luke 3, let me go ahead and say this now, is because God put Luke 3 on my heart. Um, we have been uh, personally and amongst some of our from leaders walking through just the gospel of Luke. And the reason being is um, in 2020, we're going to spend about probably eight to nine months in the gospel of Luke, just walking through the various degrees of who this person is, Jesus, son of man, son of God. Um, and, and so just in prep over the last two weeks, God has just been using Luke 3 to just, I mean, he's just been using it to revive my heart. And in the midst of this series, hi, I'm your inner world, where we're trying to speak to hearts, revive hearts, get a grid for navigating. 
man, I was like, man, Lord, let me be attentive to, to you and, and let's, let's Luke 3. And so that's where we're going to be. Let me, let me pivot to there by saying this. Don't, don't just put what we talked about with suffering on the shelf. You know, if you aren't, if you aren't suffering, let me, don't, don't, don't put it on the shelf. Because the reality is everything that was preached, those, those are bullets and a gun to attack lies that will bombard our hearts regularly, especially when we're suffering. Because nobody goes into suffering clean or empty. You always bring something in, some type of baggage, whether it's the um, pride in our hearts, our perspectives of God. We always bring stuff in. We don't go in empty, but we can leave empty. We could leave very empty, very broken, not full, not whole. And that's if we put that stuff on a shelf instead of allow it to be the building blocks of a strong heart that we could wait well. God is coming for us, that there's a method and a pattern to even how we lament last week. Don't put that on a shelf. Don't put it on a shelf, please. Uh, use it to, to, to push you towards greater experiences of truth, truth that may show up later on truth. Let me say this. I wake up regularly and one of the first things I do in the morning um, is I fix Noah's hair because I don't want him to go to school's teased. You know what I mean? And so he, he has coarse hair. So I spray it with like this coconut air spray, pick it out. Then I kind of do the little brush thing around it. But I go to my daughters. I don't fix their hair because you don't want me fixing girls' hair, right? You know what I mean? But I go to my daughters and um, without fail, like I just tell them how beautiful they are. I'm like, oh, serenity, man. If you just knew how gorgeous you are. And what's awesome, serenity, is like you are beautiful on the inside and outside. Like your inner beauty is way better than your outer beauty. Your outer beauty is amazing. I wish you knew that. And I say the same thing to, to Jojo. And, you know, she's missing three teeth right now. And so I know it's very interesting for her. And so I'm like, man, your gap is gorgeous. Yeah. And so I'll just, I'll just speak to her and I'll just tell her, man, Jojo, I think that you're gorgeous. I think that you're beautiful. Man, I can't wait to see who you're going to be 10 years from now. And so I'll constantly say these. And it's not because I'm a good dad. Let me tell you all the ways I fail. All right. But one of the reasons I say this is because I, I don't want them to be desensitized to the truth. I want them to be so bombarded by it that when somebody tries to use words wrongly, they're like, no, I know, the, I know the truth. So some random knucklehead comes up to them and they're like, man, you're gorgeous. Yeah, my dad told me that. What, what else do you have? You know what I mean? And so like, so they're guarded by the truth, not desensitized by it. It becomes this foundation for flourishing. That's what I want for them. That's what I want for us. Truth, that, that truth would, would be our shield keep us from the lies. It'd be our sword, help us to fight through lies that may bombard our hearts, the very depths of our inner world that show up in our outer world, in our lives, to be guarded, bombarded by truth. There's an assault on truth. I was, I, I mean, I don't, I really could care less where you land politically. I don't care. I say that many times and I mean, I do not care. I care that you are guided by truth. And what I've seen like in these impeachment trials, if you're not aware of it, that's if you live in America, there's a very tense season right now, politically and socially. I was watching one network and one network, it's very fascinating how different networks have different takes because we're not really about truth, we're biased. But one network had this commercial that came on and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great commercial. I wish I could have played it, but I thought it would have been distracting. Go Google it. But it's this campaign, facts first. And what they had was they had this picture of an apple, and they said, this is an apple. They said that you could scream, this is a banana. You could say it's a banana. You could tell people it's a banana. It does not change the fact that this is an apple. And I just thought that was so potent, simple, poignant, and profound. 
because they're not, they're not Christian by any stretch of means. Let me go ahead and say that. But they were getting at this simple, profound truth. That truth is actually objectifiable. It's objective. You can say this is grounded in a reality. This is truth. The greatest definition of truth is that which corresponds with reality. It's true. Truth claims, propositions, personal truth. And it said this is an apple no matter what you do. You can scream. Does it change the fact that this is an apple that I just love that? What they unwittingly brought up in my heart was this reality of how Satan operates. I'm going to get to the text, I promise. How he operates is in a misinformation campaign. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not just this. And we live in Miami, and, you know, this is the Afro-Caribbean Latino capital of the U.S., and so we have all of, like, voodoo, Santa So we have all of that here, and in the expression of that, what we do is, like, we'll make spiritual warfare out just to be, like, this figure who may be red, you know what I mean, with a little pokey tail and and a pitchfork, and he, he comes to oppress you. It's not spiritual warfare. There's an aspect of that, but that's not the way the scriptures primarily define or describe spiritual warfare. You get it in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where it's Jesus having a conversation with Satan and what Satan says, did God really say, is this true? Is this the truth? That the vastness of spiritual warfare is misinformation. That comes to keep us blinded to truth and therefore bound by a lie. I just want to say, as we move towards this text and even land this plane in this series, that it doesn't matter how beautiful or comforting a lie is, it's still a lie. That we as people should have our antennas up to detect what is not true. Thank you for clapping. (laughs) Should stop there. I'm so serious. Because if we don't get it, spiritually, socially, nothing matters. And we will live a lie and we'll die as a result of it. This text gives us some subtle yet powerful truth. They're subtleties of grace that become these hand grenades of truth that I think speak to the various parts of our hearts. And so really, I just want to walk through this text and I just, I just want us to see these subtleties. They, they, they really stand out once you spend time in it, but hopefully they'll go from being subtle to just being stand out in your heart and in your mind. So just these subtleties that exist in this genealogy, how these Subtleties really speak to, honestly, our moment in time and, 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 and really our hearts and so how they speak to our cultural moment in our hearts. And I just want to close with some considerations that I've just been having with Luke 3. So, so that's the rest of our time is, is unpacking these subtleties, how they speak to our moment in time and the realities of our hearts. And then some considerations to close. I'm going to read it. Um, I really, really like the way it reads. It reads very uh, poetically, so read it all the way through. And then we'll take it bit by bit. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it reads like this. Jesus, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matata, 
the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Matat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mahatmatat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meheliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalio, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I love the Bible. I love the story of God. There's a lot here. Um, let me let me frame this, and then we'll start to unpack some of the subtleties. Um, we have a tendency to just kind of skip over some stuff in the Bible. Uh, yeah, and this being one of them, we just like <laughs> once we get to that place where we're like I don't even know how to say this name, we just kind of like move on. Let me just say, read it and like be strong and wrong, you know, like just get after it. Yeah, and so like, but we just kind of skip over stuff. Uh, this genealogy, uh, like it shows up. In, in Matthew as well, you see the genealogy of, of Jesus. And what's interesting is there's a conflict there. And I identify the conflict because it exists. And there's various ways different um, theologians, historians have tried to, to reconcile this conflict, whether it's to say, well, well, Luke is tracing primarily through, through Mary. You know, um, there's, so there's various ways. There's some that honestly I think are, are super helpful. I, I do think that if you look at Matthew and the story of Matthew, Matthew in his gospel is, is very, very intentionally trying to present this Jewish messianic king. And, and so all of those intricacies show up that he knows he's talking to a Jewish audience. And so he's trying to present this messianic king in which they were anticipating, i.e., through the line of David. And so there's a very interesting Jewish kingship thread in Matthew's genealogy, where in Luke's gospel, Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts, he's really concerned with a Gentile audience, somebody who wouldn't necessarily be keyed into a lot of Jewish history. And, and, if, and if, you, if you read the beginning of Luke and read the beginning of Acts, you could say that concern isn't even general. It's very specific to this one person, Theophilus, who's like, man, Theophilus, I want you to get it. So what, what you see throughout the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the reasons why we're going to spend time in Gospel of Luke, is this emphasis on the humanity of God, Jesus Christ. 
And so you, so you see, even in, in, in Luke's genealogy, he, he, he goes all the way back to Adam. Now, that reconciles it for me. That may not reconcile it for other people. And I want to be the first to say, I understand that. But, but here's what we do with that reality. We actually run to the tension, not away from it. And what will happen is scriptures like this that pre- present some level of tension and even conflict, dare I say, what we'll do is we'll say, we'll either be hyper dismissive of it or we'll ignore it or we'll use this as ammunition to run away from God. Every psalm that we have read has been a story to say, run back to God. That is people who are wrestling with real life, but instead of wrestling away, they're wrestling with truth. They're wrestling with who God is. They start from a position of truth, not the other way around. And so, yes, there's tensions in this genealogy, and this is not the time to unpack all of those tensions. This is the time to say, run to it, and let's run to it together. In fact, what you'll see is the, the genealogies, they're not trying to prove his divinity. They're, they're really explaining and unpacking and celebrating his humanity. In fact, what you see even in Luke, in Luke chapter 3, the early part of this, his divinity isn't even questioned. That, that you have this scene after, and, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible, so I use it often. It's after 400 years of silence, God breaks through the silence to speak a word, and he says, this is my son, Jesus, with whom I'm well pleased. Before he's having to use truth to battle Satan in the wilderness, before he opens the eyes of anybody who is blind, before he heals anybody who's sick, before a cross, pleasure not built on performance, but bound to relationship, his divinity, son of God, not questioned. And so this genealogy is celebrating his humanity, and in light of that, it's also celebrating the hand of God. It contains so many subtleties that we would miss if we get hung up on other stuff that is not trying to answer. Can I just start unpacking some of these subtleties, the ones that stood out to me? May I? Let me, let me go with the first subtlety, but it's, it's kind of obvious. 75% of the people mentioned there, you had no clue who they were. Now, you may be a super Christian. So, like, you have, like, three quiet times a day. You know what I mean? You, you just are that person. Like, Hillsong is always in the background. And so, like, you walk on water. There's something unique about you. And so you may know more than 75%. You may know about, yeah, like, I know about 40 of them. Like, but the reality is... The vast majority of the names there, none of us knew at all. Even if you research, you'll be hard-pressed to find all of them. Do you know what that tells me? You know what that tells me? That, that we have a tendency to confuse visibility with meaning. What's most visible isn't always what's most necessary. That you have a whole host of these people who we have no clue of, not visible at all. They could be in this room. You wouldn't know them at all. But without them, no Jesus. What's most necessary isn't always what's most visible. It's, it's a subtle, it's subtle. You don't know them. Um, but but what, what's fascinating is not only, can I keep going? 75% of people you don't know. But I could also make an argument, strong argument, that the majority of these people, because you don't know them as well, and because their stories aren't necessarily told all throughout the scriptures, really had no clue of the future. They were just laboring faithfully, just living. I'm Peleg, I'm just living my life. <laughs> and then I find myself tied to this glorious story 
Christ, just living. They, they, they had no fullness of what was coming. They were just faithful in and out. Even as some of the people that you know, you can make that argument, Zerubbabel. So there's this statement in Zechariah and even Haggai about him, how like he's going to be like the signet ring. So he's going to be tied to the line of Jesus. But what precedes this statement in Zechariah 4 through 6 is very fascinating. So, so 6, it says this, that he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, which I like that. We sing it. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And then the words of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me. For whoever has despised the day of the small things rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of of Zerubbabel. It back ends that plumb line means a standard of truth. But what's fascinating is it says Zerubbabel had laid the foundation and he will complete it. Zerubbabel like was part of the return of these Babylonian exiles and he started rebuilding the temple of God. He was rebuilding the temple of God just because he was faithful. He just started a foundation. And then you have this word said to him, hey, you faithful person, by the way, guess what's going to happen? You didn't just start it. You're going to finish it. But he didn't start it thinking he was going to finish it. He started it because he was faithful. And so you don't have to know it all to give your all. Does that make sense? And, and you just see that in this, that there's people who are just living, giving freely without a full understanding of what's coming. There's just, there's a lot of subtleties. Can I keep going with some more subtleties that just have been just rocking me? And it'll lead us to our moment. It's not just the people that we don't know that have some subtle stuff. It's the people that we do know. Let me, let me lock in on one of them. It's from verse, back in verse 31, um, 32. The son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Now, Boaz. We've talked about Boaz here. So you should know him, unless you know, sometimes I sleep, you sleep during the sermons. I'm sorry, yeah. That's why there's this voice inflection. So that you could be like, hey, I just woke up. Let me just go ahead. That's, that's the reason for the cadence, keep you awake, right? Um, so you may have slept through our conversation around Boaz, but Boaz is a very interesting human in the story of humanity and God. Boaz is tied to Ruth. Now, if you know Ruth, because we did a series on Ruth, the gospel according to Ruth, this courageous immigrant woman who does what most immigrants don't do, most immigrants, we, we leave our past life expecting better. That's not what she did. She left her past life knowing that she was probably going to have an even more difficult life. That's what she did. So she was this Gentile immigrant woman was tied to Boaz. Boaz's mom was a sex worker, prostitute, Rahab. Now, that may not hit you, but let me go ahead and say I grew up, so my parents were immigrants, uh, Nigerian, African, and um, growing up, I got into a lot of fights, and the fights were around two issues. The first issue was my name. There's a lot of things that you could rhyme with Moochie, so let me just go ahead and say that. And so, like, that was, so, you know, just let your mind wander. That caused a fight growing up, right, Yeah. The second issue was my mom, right? And so, like, they'd be like, you're African, you're light-skinned, those don't exist, so your mom must have cheated on your dad. And then I threw hands. I just went after it, right? Uh, but you know, no matter where you grew up, like, when you start talking about somebody's mom, that's like a no-fly zone. 
You know what I mean? It's like, it's like instant, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> could you imagine like being Boaz? Hell, your mom was a prostitute, man. Yeah, she was. Yet Jesus including her in this line, this is so fascinating to me. But Boaz, Boaz shows us two things. It's the subtlety that Jesus isn't ashamed of us, right? That he, he comes for us, he includes us. But furthermore, you see that diversity has been God's plan from jump. From jump. Genesis 12, God gives this promise to Abraham. He says, after these whole, the nations tried to come against me, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, and he says, from the nations, I'm going to grab one man to bless the nations, to, to, to have a promised seed from all peoples. This is Genesis 12, beginning of your Bible. Then you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, and it says this. I said it in the prayer, but let me say it again. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. A people from all people has always been the plan. It is cute and necessary even now to have these racially ambiguous people be your spokespeople for whatever company that you are so that you could try through some level of visibility, say like, man, we want to draw everybody in. And so essentially what it is, is like, it's man-made diversity. Diversity has been God's plan. This room is glorious and gorgeous. Different shades, different ethnicities. This is the plan of God. And we see it even in the line of Jesus, Boaz, so subtle, yet it stands out. Other people that we may know, drop down, verse 33, end of it, and 34, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. Everybody has that person in their family that you claim only because you have to. Thanksgiving is coming. And so you see them and you're like, ah, yep, he is part of our, you know, that, and, and, and if, if it's me, Judah would be one of those people. Like Judah's story is crazy. Genesis, sister gets raped, he kills a whole village. He's a violent man. Not only did he kill a whole village, the way he killed them was he had them all be circumcised, and then he went and killed them. A lot of scripture says while they were still sore. Understatement of the world, right? Like <laughs> has them circumcised, and then he goes and kills them. Judah, like, he's like, oh, yo, 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 great, 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 great was a serial killer. That's kind of weird. Like you know, what I'm then you take Jacob. And this weasel, like that's what he was, like always trick, trickster, eventually changed to Israel because you've striven with God and prevailed. But the entirety of his life was trying to wrestle blessing from the hand of God. And the way he wrestled blessing from the hand of God was by manipulating other people. Shady character, very shady, always hustling. Son of Judah, son of Jacob, two things come for there in my mind. That's just been hitting me. God's ability to fulfill his plans is stronger than our ability to stop them. As you look at these people who were in the line of Jesus, but they all could have been erased because of their misdeeds. 
but they couldn't stop the plan of God. Second thing that comes out of that is this. God's ability to use us is stronger than our ability to disqualify ourselves. I can't thwart the plans of God. I can't jump from the hands of God. If God is marching history towards a particular end and he's using me to do it, it will get done. Now, here's why this has been like rocking me differently. We're talking about truth again. And in this season, really in the last two and a half, three years, I have watched people who are ethnic minorities walk away from Jesus. And here's how this conversation usually happens. I can't trust Christianity. That's the white man's religion. I can't trust the Bible. That passed through King James's hands. And you know King James. And it's like, wait a second, wait a second. And so what will happen is this. We can't trust the truth because of the sources from which it came from. When you just, see, did you read this genealogy and the dirty people in there, these broken, frail humans that God used to bring about Jesus? The plan of God is always to use the unlikely to bring about what's most necessary, to use the broken and the tainted to bring about what's pure and true so that he could show himself off and say, I stand apart from this, even though I stand among it. That's the gospel. And so we could do all of the textual criticism we want and talk about all the verifiable evidence there is, not just within the Bible, that claims that it is divine and inspired and the bastion of truth. But we could use other sources that the Bible uses to even verify itself. But at the end of the day, we have to come back to believing that God could use the unlikely to do what's most necessary, and that is truth. Son of Judah, son of Jacob, all of these subtleties point to the stronger picture, God's keeping power. Last subtlety was this, 72 generations, everything that could have gone wrong, everything. It's like the butterfly effect. I love that movie. And in that movie, it's like you step on one butterfly, it affects everything else. Yet, all the things that could have gone wrong, yet, Jesus still born. The keeping, sustaining power of God. This is Jude. Now unto him who is able to strengthen you, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before his, joy, before his glory with great joy. So he presents you blameless in his presence with joy. He keeps you until you see him face to face as we sung. Now, how does this speak to our cultural moment? Those must be rich truths, but how does this speak to our cultural moment, even in our hearts? Let me, let me, let me see if I could kind of nail this down a little bit. There's this movie of old, Troy. Have you seen it? It was like Brad Pitt in his prime before Angelina, you know what I mean? And so like this was like at his finest. That's not a shot towards Angelina. It's just a delineation, a demarcation of when he was good, meet Joe Black until the other, other stuff, right? You know? And so, but anyway, in this scene, he plays Achilles. 
And in, in this movie, as he plays Achilles, there's this one scene, he's getting ready to go to war, and there's this young dude that, that comes up to him, uh, you know, and he brings him this armor, and he's like, man, yo, like, man, you're getting ready to go fight this Thessalonian, this Thessalonian, right? And he's like, man, he's a large man. And he's like, yo, is it true that you can't die? Like, that you got got like, this demigod thing? He's like, if I couldn't die, why would I need a shield? Really sarcastic, right? And he's like, man, but that Thessalonian is a huge dude. I wouldn't want to fight him. Have y'all seen that movie before? He's like, he's a huge dude. I wouldn't want to fight him. Little, probably like 11-year-old. And Achilles looks at him and he says, that's why no one will remember your name. And I was like, oof. <laughs> I was like, that's harsh. Yeah, but it's kind of true at the same time in the way that we think of things. And, and that movie, it resonates with me because I feel like in our current moment of time, there's this fear of fading into nothing, this fear of being forgotten. And what, what, it, what it leads to is these two extremes in which we try to deal with this fear that exists in our hearts, that's, that almost is at the, the bottom of all of the things that we do, and then our co- current cultural moment enhances it, this fear of fading, of being forgotten. The extremes of that are that I'm watching out right now in our church in Miami is two extremes. One is this overconsumption with leaving a legacy. So everything is about legacy, everything. It's about investing right, you know, it's about protecting your interest, having financial freedom so that you could do whatever you want in the future. And it's like, it's all legacy. It's consuming. But it's, it's almost like if, if, I, if I do this, then I won't fade when I die. So we'll even, like, if we're, we're married and, you know, or we're not married and we're having kids, we're just like, man, I got to keep going until I get a son. I don't want to fade. It's just overconsumption with legacy. That's one extreme. Because I don't want to fade. I don't want to be forgotten. Fear of it. You have this other extreme. Where just because of this, this, this fear, I wasn't taking any shots if that was anybody who's like, man, you're still going because you want a son. I'm not taking any shots. But you may need to know you have to investigate what's at the bottom of that. Let me just say that. And you have to also live in a way where you don't diminish your daughters because they can't, quote, unquote, carry on your seed. All right, so I'm not taking any shots. So I just wanted to say that. But there's this other extreme right here where it's like because of fear of fading and being forgotten, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's coming next. Let me just experience as much life as I can right now. So as one extreme is investment, the other extreme is hyperindulgence. Never satisfied, always busy, bouncing from one thing to another, one feeling to another, to just try to get it all because you don't know what's coming. Yet, Everything that we see in this legacy says this. It says you can be faithful in the now because there's a future that is certain when it's tied to God. That God brings weight to every single story. And God who exists forever, if our story is connected to his, we will exist forever well. So we can be faithful and free in the now. Free to invest without having to fear what's going to happen when we die. And free to engage and enjoy, not to indulge. Because there's a better experience that's coming. Speaks to the depths of our time and our heart. We want to matter. 
all of us. And what the genealogy of Jesus says is, you measure how you matter, not by what you do, but by who you're connected to, Christ. Considerations. The first consideration is really more for me, but if you're like me, then maybe this will help you. The consideration is this. It's both an application, so it's think about this, but then also go out and, and maybe do this. It's in the secret of your soul, eagerly desire to be known and seen by God. That you have these people who we couldn't pick them out of a lineup, but they were known and saw them by God. God saw them. He knew them. It was glorious. He wanted them. Um, let, me, let me give an illustration here for this consideration that we could just take and maybe rest in. Um, I've, I've spoken before of my private addiction, dare I say, yet public aversion to romantic comedies. So I like, I like them in private, right? Hang with Diamond, let's watch some. But in public, <laughs> nah, I'm not gonna watch no chick flick, right? You know, so just because I'm a weirdo. But every, every romantic comedy follows the same formula. You have this one unseemly person, you know, who, who they have, quote unquote, that inner stuff that we don't really measure or value. And they're forever friend zoned. Yet throughout the course of the movie, there is this Adonis type character who's like, man, they just look the part. Yeah. And they start brushing up against this unseemly person. Right. And what happens is you start to wonder, is this unseemly person ever going to get with this Adonis character? And you start rooting for that unseemly person. And what happens in the course of this movie, usually after it's 70% done, is this unseemly person out of nowhere becomes like this Adonis figure. It's like they take off their glasses, put some contacts in, and all of a sudden they're different. I'm like, how does that happen? Like, I mean, like, who's your stylist? And it's just crazy, right? And so at the end of this movie, contacts off, you have glasses off, you have these two people, one new Adonis figure, and then this other Adonis figure, and then they get together and it's like happily ever after. And we cheer and we're excited and it's cool. And we keep telling that story and it's rich. There's some truth in that story. The problem is that story isn't the gospel. We tell it long enough, regular enough, we become inundated by it. We believe it. We're like, that's the way it works. You got to, to some degrees, if you want to be seen by people who are worthy, you got to doll yourself up. Gospel says that Jesus, seeing us as we are, where we are, this Adonis figure comes down and says, I want you in the midst of your unseemliness. He sees the real us. You know, the person that we hide behind all of the performance, the accolades, the makeup, the dresses, the fashion, that person, the real us, what is just us and our pillow and our thoughts. And we're afraid and ashamed of the future. The real us that's constantly busy because we're like, if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. The real us, he sees that. And he says, I still want you and I come to get you. So in the secret of our hearts, I'm, I mean, it's supernatural. But if we just bombard our hearts with truth that God, God's, God's sight of us, God's knowledge of us is the one that we really want, like, that we would eagerly desire that. So that's the first consideration. The last consideration is this that we would pour out our lives for the sake of others. Now, here's why I say that. 
that's a very missional consideration. It's to, to, to say, I will give of myself for somebody else's sake. And the reason why I've been thinking about that in light of this text and even in light of our inner world is the, the wholeness all of us want, need, are, are after is actually not just for us. Like when you see the biblical trajectory, whenever God blesses or heals or makes whole, it's for somebody else as well. It's to be an instrument, not to be a, a hoarder, but to be a giver generously of what you've found, life and peace. But furthermore, this story, this genealogy, it creates all levels of security where you're good. Somebody sees you, somebody knows you, somebody wants you. And security naturally is a source of freedom. When you're secure, you just act differently. I'm watching this when my, my, when my kid, I mean, it is just like night terror city again. It's like, and it's every day knocking on the door, can I come sleep with you? And it's like, well, I'm outside and they just, they just rest. I cannot say that illustration enough. There's just something about security that frees us. Think about this passage. Known, seen, and a great future. They're secure. There's another passage in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah, where, where, where Elijah goes to this widow who, who is getting ready to commit suicide and, and infanticide and kill, her, kill her, her, her child, her son, because things were so bad. And, and God sees her and sends Elijah to her to rescue her, but then also to give a picture for us in this analogy where he says this. He says, look, you, this little bit that you have, just keep pouring it out. Keep pouring it out and you will be sustained. As long as you do it according to the word of the Lord, because my word is secure. And, and, and she does that. And throughout this drought, she's sustained. And yo, like security leads to freedom. It allows us to freely pour out our lives. And if we believe the gospel and we see our stories connected to Jesus, we should be free. Giving of ourselves, serving others. Tell them of the story of that Adonis figure who comes in and sees people as they are and wants them. That's the gospel. The genealogy of Jesus is glorious. It's subtle. It's rich. It's full of truth. And my prayer is that all the truth that arose from this text would become a guard for our hearts and would lay fertile ground for life to flourish. Pray with me. Jesus, um, God, I pray, if nothing else, we don't skip over parts of the Bible that seem difficult or, or useless. But that's the bottom of the prayer. The top of the prayer is that we would be so secure by just a glorious good hand that you possess that would work through what may seem as less than or worthless or and god just it doesn't measure up in the eyes of man but in your eyes and in your hands it's glorious god thank you for these generations of people who existed, that though we couldn't pick them out of a lineup, Lord, they led to you coming. 
I pray that we would be so secure, so free that we would give our lives away. In your name, Jesus, amen.